0: Hey everybody, thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Highbrow Drivel. Today we're going to be talking about the philosophy of psychedelics with a good friend, comedian, I'm so glad to have her on the show, Rachel Hornbuckle, Yay! and our expert today is the uh, lecturer of philosophy and author of the upcoming book The Philosophy of Psychedelics Chris Leithby. Hello. So, just to get everybody up to speed we we have kind of covered the science of of psychedelics in an earlier episode. But essentially we're at this really interesting time where Science has been allowed to study the benefits of psychedelics again after, like, the '60s, where they're like, "Fuck off! This is a drug." Da da da, and they're coming up with some really cool benefits. Um, and so it's an it's an interesting time because this thing that has been considered like a weird fringe narcotic for a long time is now being considered as as something that may have medicinal purposes. Starting off with you, Rachel. What's your experience with psychedelics? Have you done them? Are you into them? What's your vibe?
1: I haven't done psychedelics, but we ha- we did meet in London, so I <laughs> did everything else. Um, <laughs> um, no, but I haven't done psychedelics because my brain's already just going crazy, but I did have a look at, like, some of Chris's stuff, and I was like, maybe I should. And then I was like, is this a Like... <laughs> Is this like an intervention of, like, yes, you should do drugs? That's how I feel right now. (laughs)
0: Like, (laughs) that's good. And Chris, I guess, again, just to to get people on the level, what inspired you? Because I imagine as an academic, as a philosopher, it's, it's, it's a big career statement to be like, do you know what? My book, Psychedelics, that's where it's at. What? Why did you think that was an important thing to say?
2: Yeah, well, so it was an interesting decision to make, especially eight years ago when I was starting my PhD and the new wave of psychedelic research was underway and a number of studies had already been done, but it wasn't nearly as far along in terms of the positive publicity and so on as it is now. And my um, wonderful PhD supervisor, to whom I'll be forever grateful for agreeing to supervise this wacky sounding project, also had my best interest at heart and said to me, you know, you have to realise this might be a career limiting move. This is a, a pretty weird, <laughs> weird yeah. sounding project to take on, especially at the PhD level. Um, and he was right. It was a gamble. But I, I mean, it, it sort of paid off. The research has just really come along in leaps and bounds. But I got interested first off, I was already interested in issues to do with the mind and the brain, right? So the philosophy of cognitive science and the, the philosophy of unusual mental states and basically I'd had a, a long-running interest in mysticism and meditation practice and things like this. And I mean, the short version is I just became aware of this whole history that a lot of people don't know about of research on psychedelics in the 50s and 60s and the fact that it was starting up again. And um, I noticed that academic philosophers had had virtually nothing to say about it, with a couple of rare exceptions, they would paid very little attention to it. And so the thought was as simple as there's got to be something interesting to learn here from the mind about the kind of scientific and therapeutic use of these drugs that cause these incredible, weird, far-out experiences. Oh.
0: Makes a lot a lot of sense. So, Rachel, you mentioned you'd been speak, uh, like looking a bit at, at some of uh, Chris's research um, and, and some of the stuff he's Yeah, I
1: didn't want to come into this and be like, yeah, what about – and I was like, I kind of want to know, have a bit of background. But, yeah, sorry, what
0: was your question? I, totally I guess the question is so, – so it's this weird thing, right, because I – I will be honest. I think not to be one of these people who was like, mm, "I found this band before they were cool." <laughs> but my, uh, <laughs> like my 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 uh, interest, let's word it that way, in in psychedelics was kind of I think at the same same time as you were writing your PhD, Chris. It was about eight years ago. And I found it via meditation and I was doing a bunch of stuff on my mental health. And a guy who I was doing a lot of meditation with was like, you know what you really need to try is is magic mushrooms. And I was like, what the fuck? And then he sent me a few links and down the rabbit hole I went. But essentially, this is is the weirdest thing to explain to people because I do... Like I, I do ten minutes on magic mushroom in my in my hour comedy show that my parents have seen. I was going to say that. Why do you do that? Yeah, and and my parents have been in the audience of that show. Where I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I used to hire hotel rooms once a month yes. so that my parents wouldn't see me hire on drugs. <laughs> um and the weird thing is is like up until a couple years ago it was really hard to have the conversation with people that like no no this isn't me getting fucked up to have a good time this is me following science before i guess before people are openly willing to recognize it to try and like do something that that seems like it, it will be beneficial to my mental health. Rachel, what was the most surprising thing that you saw like having a, having a checkup before the show? And also what, what, you, you mentioned you've done everything else and London is ridiculous in that like like Deliveroo and all your food deliveries, like you can get Coke in in, in your Macca's bag pretty much, yeah. the accessibility. What stopped you? So yeah, what's the most surprising thing about the research and what has stopped you doing psychedelics?
1: Right. Um, I think the surprising thing about the research was that it relieves depression, but also that it takes like one to three, what's to say, dosage or something, one to three sessions of it and that it can last quite a while. And like, then I started thinking about people with depression, like think about someone who has depression and all of a sudden they're taking like magic mushrooms and suddenly they're feeling something like that'd be such a weird is that what happens or not really? They just talk through it.
2: I mean, in the good cases, yeah, you, you know, you'll see people describing, saying that, you know, as as the effect of the, the drug came on, the, the psilocybin, I, it felt like all the, the kind of layers were being stripped off, like, you know, I was kind of in touch with my senses again for the first time. And not in every case, but, yeah, in successful cases, people do describe that sort of thing.
1: Um, people with full-blown depression, like, they do everything. Like, they do... Um, uh, ECT, what is it, ECT, where they like shock mm, your brain. Electric the electroconvulsive brain therapy. Yeah. yeah, and they still don't get any um, result from that and it's like they've tried everything. Like that would be so hectic. So it would be such a life-changing thing. But anyway, very quickly, I didn't do psychedelics just because I think I don't trust my brain on them because I'm already <laughs> insane. <laughs> I'm dead serious. <just laughs> <it. laughs>
0: I mean, to be fair, we will we will get into this. Like, I think this will be the crux of the episode. But I yeah. do think it is funny that the idea is that oh, you know, my, my my I don't trust my brain, but I will get it to give out all of its happy chemicals by taking MDMA and like all the serotonin. See ya, and I'll trust it that eventually it'll make that back is like a, a really common and accepted thing right yeah. right like i don't trust my i don't trust my brain but fuck it let's see what happens when it's got no happy chemicals left <laughs> but then on the other side of things like that's the next day no one sees it when it's
2: Depleted. Well, interesting thing too, right? So this idea of the MDMA come down, the sort of Tuesday blues or whatever, it's just one study so far, but there's a bit of suggestion coming out of the academic research that it might not really be a thing or that insofar as it is a thing, it's not the MDMA doing it. So, yeah, there is this idea that goes around that MDMA releases all your serotonin and dopamine and then you've got none left and that's why you feel shitty and miserable on the Monday or the Tuesday. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, in uh, trials in the UK where they're using MDMA Assisted therapy for alcoholism. They kind of tracked people's moods in the in the days following uh, the MDMA session. You know, they had the MDMA session on the Saturday and found there was no drop in mood. People didn't have that kind of dip that you see after you go take MDMA and go clubbing or raving or whatever.
0: Oh my god, MDMA is like it's not me. Yeah, you just, hate just blown it. my fucking mind. <laughs> I. I I have to be honest is I I have not touched MDMA in the best part of a decade because I I definitely have anxiety. I legitimately thought I had depression because I kept like breaking down in tears at work on a Tuesday. Um and I was like what is the why is it always Tuesday? And then I worked back and I'm like oh maybe it's just too much MDMA. The idea that that could be a placebo has fucking rocked my world 10 minutes in.
2: Well, look, okay, I should say a couple of things, right? First off, I'm not an expert really on MDMA. I specialize (laughs) in the classic psychedelics. This is, this is just one study so far that I'm referring to, so don't get too excited yet. Um, and the other thing is when people have discussed this, they don't think it's a placebo. They just think it's all the other shit you do when you take MDMA, right? So the, the dip in mood comes from like, you know, staying out dancing all night and exhausting yourself and, um, you know, maybe getting dehydrated, maybe drinking as well or taking other substances. This is kind of one of the going theories. So we don't know for sure, but, yeah, it might not be a thing
0: yeah oh okay. yeah so- so so the point is if you wanna follow the science right now, not that we encourage drug use on the show, but if you did wanna follow the science right now this the the suggestion is if you're gonna take m d m a maybe do it on a couch early in the day, less That's dancing right. more water go to bed
2: yeah, yeah, exactly ten a m nine a m ten a m introspective day with a therapist <laughs> we'll coffee. um yeah, and then <laughs> yeah. get an early I night some in therapy, yeah. <laughs> and Tuesday, you'll be feeling right as rain.
0: I can ship this. I'm a. i am aii Especially since the pandemic, my bedtime is dramatically earlier than it's ever been. I can ship it.
2: <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> I stay up later in the pandemic. Doing fucking what, Rachel? I, I guess. <laughs> I guess it is worth sharing that, like, Australia has been open. So, you know, you've got more to do. We digress. So, I. Uh, so you don't trust your brain is an interesting one. And I think that kind of really does get to the, the point of what I think this episode will be mostly about. And I mentioned earlier, like that, that, um, the, the attitude towards psychedelics is so different to, to, almost any other drug. And I, I've, I've definitely been, um, we're all Australian based, so it's easy to tell this story, but like I've been at parties in Australia where I'm like, oh, you know what? I know I need to drive tomorrow and it's a public holiday. So there's probably going to be a drug bus on the road. So I'll, I'll, I'll do a, you know, half a tab of acid so that I can have a good time because I know everybody else is going to be cooked. Um, but I know that the, the buses won't, Pick up LSD essentially, Um, and the idea of like rooms full of people just like eating rocks of MDMA like they're fucking crisps, being (laughs) like, "Oh my god, you're doing psychedelics you you go hard like wow I've never done that I've never been brave enough." They get treated so differently to any other drug, and I think I but I think that part of it does get to the 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 this thing is that because they weren't adopted as a party drug and they've always been fringe the early adopters i guess have have been people who have have been how do i word this gently but also give a strong opinion um like i mean i guess it, in the uk we'd call them wooks they're like the, the, the early adopters have been, like, not just ultra-hippies, but ultra-mystical, like, yeah, man, like, the, we take out L- LSD because it broadens our third eye and we get to see interdimensional realities, and and I think the, the popular... Um, like weird correlation is not causation is that people think like oh if you take psychedelics you turn into one of these ultra hippies um and i think that's kind of been been a huge barrier rachel i'm going to ask you the question that i'm not brave enough to say have hippies ruined psychedelics do you think <laughs> <laughs>
1: Do you know what? I was actually thinking about this. I was like, it sounds really fun to, like, find, like, be one with the world, like, have that ego death that everyone talks about, but I also would like to wear shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So do you know what I mean? You always see that hippie who looks, like, so happy and is just, like, the world is all of ours to share, and it's like, where is half your clothes? Like... (laughs) that's how I honestly feel yeah. so yes based on that because I thought you were talking about how hippies have ruined it by like talking about ego death and I was like but essentially isn't that what it is but that makes so much sense that yeah I've seen a lot of hippies that I do not want to be like
0: and so, so Chris is it an unfair summation of your book that I didn't realize was based on your thesis like if I was explaining it to somebody, could I say, oh yeah, like chatted to this guy, really smart philosopher, wrote a book about how hippies are ruining psychedelics.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't want to put it like that. Um, <laughs> I I think hippies are great. Hippies are fantastic. Uh, but... You could say my book is about how psychedelics are not just for hippies. Um, in fact, I like I like Rachel's spin on it, right? So you could say my book is about how you can take psychedelics, have ego death, and still wear shoes, right? You don't have to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to lose the shoes. You don't have to open the third eye.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, Oh, is it too late to add a parenthesis around like a subtitle on your book, uh, The Philosophy of Psychedelics, How You Can Have Ego Death and Still Wear Still Shoes?
2: Wear Shoes. Unfortunately, it got sent off to the printers literally about three days ago. I got the fateful and frightening email saying it's now no more changes are possible at this point. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's too late.
0: We are we are too late. I, I, I guess. That'll have to be the I, sequel. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I, I, I think I think Chris so I guess now's a really good point just to, to, to get a bit more insight into like because obviously I've worded it in my undelicate way. From a more academic point of view, what 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 were the forces at work in in the book and and, and I guess what what is the, the, the elevator pitch, what what it explains.
2: Yeah, so like a lot of philosophy happens when you have two or more ideas that each seem plausible, but which seem like they're somehow in tension and you've got to figure out how to resolve it. And You have, a, you know, a lot of the time it might be two two sort of ideas or two claims about the world that you have, and each of them seems plausible on its own, but there's some kind of tension between them. And so you've got to try and figure out what's the best way of resolving this. Do you ditch one? Do you ditch the other? Or do you somehow try and show that they can be harmonised and you can hang on to them both? And so my work, pretty much all, at least the, the stuff in the book, comes out of this tension between two ideas And one is that people, when they take psychedelics, especially in supervised conditions, and they have these therapeutic transformative experiences, that they gain some kind of real knowledge or insights. There's something real that they learn in those experiences. So that seems really plausible to me. But then on the other hand, I'm also quite attached to a view in philosophy called naturalism, which says, you know, the natural world is all there is. There are no third eyes and chakras and spirit realms and and (laughs) any of this kind of stuff right um and obviously as you've observed a lot of people who claim to have learned something from psychedelics are claiming to have learned something along those lines something about the spirit world or cosmic consciousness or ground of being or something like that so traditionally it's sort of saying like there are one of two ways you can go you can either say yeah you learn stuff um on psychedelics and it's all this you know, uh, to put it crudely, like supernatural type of stuff. Or you can say, well, you know, um, none of that stuff is real. I don't believe in a cosmic consciousness or a spirit world. And so psychedelics don't give people any real knowledge. They're just hallucinogens. They just cause cause hallucinations or psychotic type experiences. And so I wanted to hold on to both ideas. I thought both of these ideas seem plausible, that you learn something real on psychedelics and that naturalism is the, the correct view of the world. So it's all been about how can we harmonize that how can we reconcile those two ideas
0: i think just like work that is ahead of its time because I, I i know uh from the last episode we did there is like billions of dollars being invested in like medicinal uh research of, of, of psychedelics at the moment and at some point people like my mum and dad who who bless them are beautiful people but just would never again w- would link the idea of like yeah but if if I take acid once, am I going to want to have an orgy? Like that's where, 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 where their heads will be at. Um, the idea that there is going, that there is science uh, and, and thought behind, you know, the why and not just the what is, I think something that will be necessary quite soon. So good on you for being ahead of the curve.
2: Well, thanks very much. Yeah, but that's exactly the sort of worry that I'm trying to address is, yeah, people who are perhaps, you know, devoted to a more – Uh, you know, secular or, you know, rational or naturalistic kind of view of the world. That's the sort of worry they might often have, is that if I do this, if I take this once, am I going to kind of completely transform and turn into a different sort of person or a person with beliefs that I I think I don't want to uh, adopt? And so that's, yeah, that's the sort of worry I've been trying to address. Exactly.
0: Gotta ask at this point, how, if you're comfortable talking about this, how much of the want- to change people's minds about this was based on personal want for for people to accept behavior (laughs) look I
2: for a a long time I didn't talk about this at all in any sort of interviews or public talks recently I fessed up to the probably fairly obvious fact that yes I have had psychedelic experiences um, and they have played (laughs) a role in motivating my work Um, but I don't really want to talk about my own experiences in any sort of detail (laughs) to be honest
0: <laughs> they have played a role. That's all we need to know, Chris.
1: I feel like at one point Chris would have been like on a trip or something. He's like, everyone must know about this. And then he just starts to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. I can I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Rachel, are you are you getting FOMO just a little bit? Um
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think if I was going to do it, I would do it where they have it set up with the therapist. But I, like I was reading about how it makes everything very like intense, all your emotions very intense. And I was like, I can barely hold a vulnerable conversation. So I don't know if I could do that. (laughs) That would freak me out.
0: This is, uh, this is an, yeah, I mean, I think that's an, again, it's a very interesting thing, right? Because. All, all narcotics, particularly all class A's, but even alcohol, like they all affect your brain in some way that, that makes you more vulnerable just because it's not used to being that way, right? I, 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 I again, I do think the the differentiation in like, I, just, just, uh, like, oh, no, 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 that drug is, n- that drug is weirder. I, I, find is, um, interesting. We so actually like- go. Well, I,
2: I'd chime in if you don't mind, because this might be a bit of a surprising thing for me to say, but I just want to defend that differentiation a bit, actually. I don't think it's a completely uh, wild one to make, right? So there's this weird paradox about psychedelics where, yeah, more and more evidence is coming out showing that in terms of objective harms, they are among the safest drugs we know of, right? They're definitely a lot less harmful to the, to the individual than kind of um, – alcohol and, um, you know, or, or heroin and all sorts of other things, tobacco, nicotine. But on the other hand, for all that objectively they are really, really safe, um, they also can induce experiences that are really, really difficult and really very intense in a way that other substances can't. So... I mean, in controlled settings, in therapeutic settings and and religious settings, a lot of care is taken to the environment and the the kind of the way the whole thing is set up to minimise the probability of this happening. Um, But if you, you know, basically Aldous Huxley, like famously wrote The Doors of Perception, right, about his experiences on mescaline. But his second book, the follow-up book on psychedelics, was called Heaven and Hell. Um, And so that's the whole thing about them is that they have this you know you get these amazing findings in some of the clinical trials of um you know half to two-thirds of people saying this was in the top five most important and most meaningful experiences of my life they say it was as meaningful to me as you know the birth of my child or, or something like that and so they have this power to kind of give people the best experiences the most meaningful experiences that it's possible to have but that same power also if something goes wrong also enables them to cause people to have some of the worst experiences of their life right so the the classic bad trip and like we do know a lot about how to tip the scales how to minimize the probability of one and maximize the probability of the other but like i don't think it's you know there's it's not completely silly to say well psychedelics can take you to places that other drugs can't that are places that are worth kind of being a bit wary of
0: yeah that's fair and i I should say, for all the flippancy I've, I've I've had around this, like I am, and and it's interesting because because again to, to the point of our conversation around like um, mysticism and ceremony and and spirituality being attached to psychedelics, I am not a spiritual person, and none of my my psychedelic experiences will I attribute to that, but my my like behavior when I was taking them quite regularly, and then even now, if I take them occasionally uh, in between, is the most like regimented and i guess almost ceremonial ritualistic, close to religious in in it how dedicated the repetition is of that day for for exactly the reasons you're saying, like to minimize the chance of taking a bad trip i i i I'm very conscious of like, okay, so I, I I won't drink for three days beforehand. I will wake up. I have the same breakfast that I know is going to be like light enough. I'll do meditation. I'll eat them. I'll have a bath. I'll do some more meditation. Like it is a real like for something that is fancy free and loose and oh my God, where are your shoes? I'm <laughs> um, also really ritualistic.
2: Yeah, yeah. And this is like, this is something that obviously has been developed to a fine art by the traditional um, sort of organisations and and religions that use these substances, you know, the ayahuasca churches, the kind of neo-shamanic uh, churches in South and Central America, before you're going to take it, you have a special diet that you have to have for several days and things like that. And that's something that has been, you know, adopted as well in the clinical research is this idea of, yeah, you've got to really get as they call it, set and setting. You've got to get the person's head right and you've got to get the environment right. And if you do that, then you can really, really, you know, up the chances of a beneficial experience and really minimize the chances of a harmful one. And you can, you can, and that way you can make those odds really, really good, but you have to pay attention to that stuff.
0: What's the diet? Yeah, I was going to say, can we just get like a menu for Rachel <laughs> J- just to, to <laughs> help her out? <laughs> Again, going back into, like, naturalism of this substance that is is uh, treated mystically, what are the things that we know can trigger a, a, a bad experience?
2: Yeah, so, like, in some ways we don't know a lot. Uh, it's sort of been believed, um, you know, it's kind of part of clinical wisdom since the early research in the 50s and 60s that really anybody with any personal or family history of any kind of psychotic mental illness, usually schizophrenia and bipolar and psychotic depression, um, people with any kind of uh, history or predisposition there just shouldn't have psychedelics, they're contraindicated, because if there is a predisposition, they might be able to trigger a lasting psychosis or something like that. Um, and then um, apart from that, so this is this is one of the the ways that the safety record of the recent research has been so good is there's just a lot of care being taken to in screening, you know, and you don't kind of let anyone into the trial who has any of those risk factors. Um, so there are some people who just really shouldn't. Um, you know, for whom it was very risky to try psychedelics. But then um, apart from that, there's a few studies that have been done looking at, you know, what are people's mind states at the time they take the drug and correlating that to who has a good experience and who doesn't. And it's still pretty early days. We don't know a whole heap about that. But so there's some research that sort of confirmed, again, what, the clinical wisdom has been for a long time, which is that this state of surrender, right? If you go into this the experience with this attitude of I'm prepared to experience whatever comes up and I'm not going to kind of resist it or fight it or struggle or try and avoid it, that seems to strongly predict having a good experience, having a positive and beneficial experience.
0: That that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of like I I, I very, very, very rarely do do psychedelic socially partly because of, again, okay, like the ritualistic nature of the way I treat them, um, but when I have done them in, in a social setting with other people, the, the people who I've seen have um, the worst experiences, I guess, have been people who are quite control orientated. So, I mean, I, I think that makes sense. Rachel, have you heard of that? Ba- like, have you had a friend had a bad experience? Have you, what, what's your vibe there?
1: I was trying to think about this because I wanted to talk about it. Um, I'm a nurse and I've worked in a lot of, um, like, I've worked in emergency. Um, I And I was trying to think, have I seen anyone have a bad experience with, like, psychedelics? But I haven't. I've only seen people who've had bad experience with, like, amphetamines, obviously, but um, also pills. Like, I've seen some really rough stuff from patients who've taken pills. Um, I haven't heard any bad experiences from my friends who've done psychedelics at all.
0: I, I, uh, I, I, I mean, I've, I've done them enough that I definitely have. I, I, I once, uh, fell asleep on a, a friend's uh, a chest because I was having a great trip and it was quite cold and I was like, why Why am I so sweaty? And it worked out that that friend had been crying so much during the course of the trip that my head was covered in their tears and I thought I was sw- sweaty. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So, I mean. Like, shouldn't
1: people, like, Overcoming something when you're crying and you're on them? Is that a thing? I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to say crying on psychedelics is not always bad. Sometimes it can be part of a really po- positive emotional catharsis or something like that, totally. Yeah, yeah. But I gather that's not what was happening with your friend. <laughs> it
0: was – I I, I I have to be honest. I, I wish I could uh, give a better answer, but I was having a really good trip and so it was not as attentive as I <laughs> <laughs> i I was there like isn't the world wonderful and full of magic isn't it brilliant and literally no idea that what I th- thought was sweat on my head that I couldn't explain was tears um so probably not 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 the most helpful <laughs> um, i I do think what is interesting and and we will segue back to this this duality between naturalism and mysticism on them what one of the interesting things is like I came to psychedelics I guess, Eight or so years ago, as well, and there was less easily found literature around how to do it. I, I, I did spend a lot of time, like on, a, like Facebook forums and 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 groups that are filled with people trying to share this information peer to peer because it's not publicly available. Um, and and I hadn't been back on them the the forums not the psychedelics for for the longest time until this experience happened and then i went back on them and i was like hey you know this is a thing a friend is dealing with i have never had this so i don't know h- how to handle it or how long it will last who who has an experience like this and the amount of again miss like like f- for something that is becoming more popular and the the uh, people doing it are getting more diverse and more science based the amount of mystical like no but the magical elves <laughs> will like the, the fucking elves can fuck <laughs> off if i'm honest the elves can fuck right off the amount of like, and and let's be honest like i i've i've done enough psychedelics that i've seen what they're talking about but at no point did i go oh you know that that thing that my mind made up because i had (laughs) scrambled it a bit because i wanted to is the meaningful part of the experience you know like no surely the way i feel at the end of this is what's meaningful not the weird fucking elf um why do you think people are so attached to the mysticism of it at the end?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think part of it has actually got to do with the fact that these experiences are so variable, right? And so it's very hard to actually compare the experiences you had with the experience these other people were having. And so, you know, one of the the famous components of the psychedelic experience is, especially if it's a mystical experience of oneness or whatever, but you can still have it anyway, is this what they call noetic quality, this feeling of reality, this sense that what you're experiencing while you're on the drug is more real than real, type real. Sometimes people describe feeling as though ordinary everyday life was a dream and they've only woken up now that they're they're on the drug and so the experiences can be very very vivid and um, I actually think you know you, you can there's probably a lot of factors it's probably complicated and you can speculate about it but I think a lot of the time the explanation is actually really really straightforward it's just that you know people experience something that is so vivid and so detailed and feels for all the world like it's coming from outside of them like they don't have any conscious sense that they're making this up that what they're seeing and experiencing has any relation to anything they've thought of in their life before and it has this over, overwhelming, overpowering sense of being more real than real, I think if you have that sort of experience, it's very hard not to take it seriously, right? It's kind of the exception rather than the rule to actually be able to get the sort of sceptical, critical distance afterwards that is required to say, well, even though that felt more real than all my Waking experiences in everyday life. It still was probably, or may well have been, just something that my brain cooked up in an abnormal mode of functioning.
1: It's complete sense.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna do it. I gotta <laughs>
0: I'm I'm not out
2: here trying to give a sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Rachel, do it, do it live on the show. The next pod will have bonus ep Rachel on site. Oh yeah, yeah,
2: it can be like um, Elon Musk smoking that joint on Joe Rogan's podcast or whatever it was.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And thank fuck, Rachel. I would much rather have you on the show than Elon Musk. Don't get me started. Um, I'm not allowed to talk about him on the show anymore because my my wife makes fun of how often I make fun of Elon on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, what what are you like? I guess a couple of questions here. Pick and mix what what you think is like most interesting answer. Um, but like what what. Are you, what do you imagine your mind may cook up or what's the most interesting story you've heard of somebody taking psychs? Like wh- where where are you at with that?
1: Um, I think it comes back to what you were saying, Wes, like I do like to be in control. So I, I think it would bother me that I wouldn't be able to be in control. Um, nothing, my friend, I always remember my best friend, she did Mushrooms. And she always just talks about these trees that she saw. And like she talks about them. Like she could write a novel about these fucking trees. I've heard about them so many times. I was like, I wasn't there. I was not on mushrooms. Please let the trees go. She's like, you don't understand, Rachel. They were so beautiful. Like, like she's like getting married having kids. And she's so exactly like what you said, Chris. She's like, these trees though. Like I'm like, let the trees go. But um yeah, it's only, I've only heard positive, good experiences, but yeah, I want to be in control. I think that's even when I like go to therapy, I want to be in control and she's like, you've got to be vulnerable. I'm like, no, I'm going to make up a lie today.
0: With, without asking you to explain your therapy session to a bunch of random, uh, very loyal, I love you listeners. Uh, <laughs> how's that play out? How are you trying to control your therapy session? Okay. All right. So I, I
1: had a rough childhood. Um, which I'm totally cool, had a lot of therapy for and striving and whatnot. Um, but there was, I grew up in hospital, hence why I became a nurse. So I spent a lot of time in hospital and I also had a father abusive situation, blah, 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 blah. And anytime my therapist tries to get into that, I'm like, here was my day, let's talk about it. She's like, that's not the issue, Rachel. We need to actually talk about your childhood. And I'm like, totally. I don't think anything happens. Anyway. And so she's like, you, she, at one point she was like, you won't even have a conversation with your own therapist that you pay. And I was like, yeah, but it's very common that people lie to their therapists to get out of talking about things. And I'm like, I, I don't do it anymore, but I have done it. And people, yeah, they lie to their therapists because they don't want to open up about stuff, which to me is insane because mine's very expensive. <laughs>
0: On that note, I mean, that that is a legitimate, like, genuine reason, in, at least in my opinion, no professional experience whatsoever. But uh, it- it's a legitimate, like, I think your hesitance around taking psychedelics then actually makes sense because yeah. one thing, like, you can lie to your therapist, but one thing that psychedelics <laughs> can do is like if there is shit in your head that you're like, no, we'll keep that in a nice little box at the back of our brain where we never look at it, that's in the dark corner. It it definitely, I I have, again, uh, people crying and I thought it was my sweat. It can (laughs) definitely go, hey, hey, look at this box of shit you've put in your back of your head, fuckhead. When are you going to look at this? It can (laughs) definitely do that. This is
2: exactly what I was going to say. LSD is the the therapist you can't lie to. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you
1: should have made that your book title. That's incredible.
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of sequels in the works. Yeah, <laughs>
1: That's so good. I would take it. i be like, oh, all right, they got me here.
0: Like, <laughs> <laughs> it it is. I, I it is interesting, right? Because I guess and and at this point chris i guess i'm i'm taking a best guess at what where where your work gets to but that is kind of one of where the powers of psychedelics are right is that it shakes up our brains are very good shortcut machines and and in that there are some good shortcuts that we make that are like, oh, you know, I don't have to pay attention to everything that enters my visual field or everything I hear, because if I did, I would never get shit done. Uh, but we also make some bad shortcuts, which is where addiction and repetitive thought processes kind of um, come from because our brain's just like, no, nah, we've taken this, this path before it's quick and it's easy. doesn't matter if it, if the destination is good. Um, and, and, I guess the power of, of, of psychedelics is kind of in the way that they, they shake up those shortcuts a bit and go, oh, you know what, it's kind of delete internet history for your, your brain a bit, right?
2: Yeah, no, well, exactly. And if you look at uh, the reports, the interviews with the people in the trial they did at Imperial College London, psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, so many of these patients who tried other treatments for depression and didn't work described their experience on psilocybin as like, it was like my brain was being reset or it was like, it felt like the hard drive of my brain being defragged or something like that. So, yeah, that's absolutely right. That is kind of, in a nutshell, the going story uh, about how they work from a naturalistic perspective and that's kind of the story that's at the heart of my work is that yeah our brains build these rough and ready models of who we are and um, what our world is like and um, they're very efficient and because they're efficient they're kind of oversimplifying um, and psychedelics get in there and kind of um dismantle those models and say, let's have another look. They kind of actually give you a chance to see all the information about yourself, about your life that these, these models are filtering or screening out.
0: But just, just so just so we're clear, it's not it's not the, the, the magical elves that are going and and, and giving you this uh, decree on high. <laughs> no, it's not. Unless
2: the people are right who think that the elves are somehow some kind of like anthropomorphic personalization, like metaphorical depiction of like systems in your brain or something like that. In that case, maybe it is them. But no, it's not real elves outside of you. <laughs> Not according to me.
0: No, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to take you're the expert here, so you, we're, we're, <laughs> we're taking your word. We're here to talk shit. So, uh, you are, you are you, you've given us the decree on high, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, yeah, the decree is it's not the elves,
0: yeah. Um, my my I just at this point, uh, indulging myself here, but my favorite, uh thing I've ever seen on like psychedelic Facebook is uh, somebody who is like, who here has taken enough psychedelics to have noticed the recent shift in the timeline? And it's like, motherfucker, you can't just go and create, uh, not create, but like decide that a version of alternate reality exists and then open ask the internet to confirm that that is never going to end in a way that doesn't make you crazier. What were the answers though? I want to know anyone. Rachel, (laughs) it literally, I've got to be honest. It literally went, I think it was in the late like eighties when I, when I commented and Almost everybody who chose, because it's, it's, it's a confirmation bias thing, right? Like most people will see that and go, this person's cooked. Oh. I'm gonna scroll past. Scroll
2: past and ignore. It, yeah,
0: exactly. And so it was in the '80s. Of the people who engaged, were like, "I've noticed a shift in the timeline too. <laughs> Nothing is right. Nothing is right. We, we need to give people LSD to wake them up from there. Nothing is right in the timeline." And I, I just my personality was just like, "Oh, uh, I, I guess a similar thing. Like I can't have people." because I am so aware of how judged I was when I started talking about psychedelics, I was like, I can't have people continue to define the things that I had so beneficial experiences based on the fact that you're too often the spokesperson for it. You know what I mean? Like, um, so so I had to go in and I was just like, guys, I love psychedelics a lot, but I think a lot of you have taken too much and just maybe – have a nap and a month off and just, you know, let let the timeline reset itself, as you will.
2: Right. So, yeah, so it is this kind of thing. As you say, this is what gives psychedelics a bad name and what illustrates that there are real risks, not just psychological risks, but, like, risks that I, as a philosopher, am interested in, epistemic risks, so risks to our knowledge of the world.
0: Yes, that is a really actually... Very fucking interesting point to get it late into the episode, but <laughs> let, let's go there and we'll see how, how how deep we get in. But it is I, I've made a lot of fun of the no shoes wearing mysticism of psychedelics, as if I am better. <laughs> but it is very true that one of the things in deleting the internet history, as it were, of your um. Like your shortcuts of your browser, is that it does give you a moment to question things that actually once you don't like once you answer that question, you're like, why did I fucking question that? But it does, it it can open up opportunities to, to ask a question where one is not needed. Is there I guess where particularly I, I'm asking a very big question. Now, I realize this and feel free to be like, dude, fuck off. Um, but we're, we're at a time where like divergent narratives are easier to build than ever before. Cause you can build these echo chambers online and, and almost not have to interact with any kind of common reality. If you so cho- chose to build your life that way is would psychedelics increase the risk of actually not, you, you haven't entered an alternate reality because you took a trip and you've ended on a new timeline, but you have because you've built your world in such a way and continue to take these substances. Like, is that like a legitimate risk?
2: Yeah, I I think so. And I hope this kind of risk can be managed, right? So like, I mean, you mentioned echo chambers, that's a way that I actually like to talk about these models, these self models that we have in our brains is that, you know, if I'm I'm depressed, and I have a model of myself as a kind of unlovable, unworthy person that, you know, good things don't happen to, or if I'm addicted, and I have a model or a story of myself as a person who, you know, uses every day and can't stop using these models become echo chambers, because they screen out um, information that's inconsistent with that story. And And so, you know, one of the the good uses, one of the good kind of epistemic knowledge-related uses psychedelics can have is to break open the echo chamber and let new information in. But it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? As you say, if you break down all your preconceptions and beliefs and models of who you are and what the world is and so on, then you have this moment, this period of time during which the question is open and you could answer the question in any number of different ways. And so, um, yeah, it's like this this ability that psychedelics have to actually get us out of some of our partial and limited and, and harmful kind of models goes hand in hand it can't be separated from this capacity they have to also induce this epistemic risk where suddenly you know your mind is so open that it could just fall out right (laughs) Um, and um you could end up believing all sorts of um unjustified implausible things that you don't want to and now this still needs to be studied right but a lot of people are getting more interested in studying this kind of thing is there a a link between psychedelic use and belief in sort of unwarranted conspiracy theories and kind of uh, you know uh, unscientific beliefs and this sort of thing Um, but yeah my my view is that there are risks and benefits there and they go hand in hand but what we need to try and do in the same way that you know we've figured out very effectively by the looks of it how to manage the psychological risks and benefits right how to minimize the risks and maximize the benefits i think we have to do the same thing with the epistemic risks and benefits figure out how to minimize the risks and maximize the benefits
1: that was a lot i liked it how do you i mean i suppose you already talked about this but how do you and you were saying there's not as much knowledge on it yet like how do you make sure it is a safe space to do it in
2: do you mean like psychologically safe or um, epistemically safe, the kind of I thing I've just guess, been
1: I would about. say psychologically just because that's probably what I'm asking for myself.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, that, you know, is, yeah, pretty well known, although in, you could say that some of this stuff is like clinical wisdom that hasn't really been tested. So there is a way of doing it. That we know is safe because it's basically been done this way in all these recent clinical trials and the safety profile has been good. Uh, we don't necessarily know which bits of these, this is essential and which bits are not because people haven't systematically tried. Well, what happens if you remove this bit? What happens if you put in this bit? You know, but the general vibe, the general approach in the sort of clinical trials is. The person has a few meetings before the session day with the supervising therapist. Usually there's one male, one female therapist. that's going to be there with them on the day um, and they have sort of three meetings or so to get to know them, develop rapport, talk about their life history. Then on the dosing day, they go in there in this very nice, comfortable sort of, you know, simple room. There's a couch. There might be one or two sort of paintings of nature or something like that controversially sometimes there might be a Buddha statue or something. There's a lot of debate around whether Buddha statues are okay in the session room. Um, But uh, there might sometimes be some religious iconography, but usually, you know, maybe just some flowers, a nice painting, a couch. And what happens is there will be a playlist uh, typically of classical music that's kind of been curated to match the, the length of the drug effects. And so the person lies down on the couch, they put on these eye shades, um, they put on the headphones, they've been coached by now and prepped about what to do and the instructions are trust, let go, be open, try and adopt this mental state of acceptance, surrender, and curiosity. And they're also told to really like, let yourself go within, open up to your inner experience and have an introspective experience. And so hence the blindfolds and the music and so on. Um, and then basically, the uh, therapists just sit there and kind of let the patient do their thing. And um, if they don't hear anything from the patient in like, you know half an hour or an hour they'll occasionally sort of check in on them and see how they're going but other than that they sort of just let the patient um, guide it and determine when they're going to kind of take the eye shades off and talk and when they're going to keep them on Um, and that's basically how it goes and then they're just there for if it's psilocybin they're there in that room for six hours while the the drug effect plays out uh, just with their eye shades on and their music on just having this mind-blowing experience
0: oh that's so cool yeah. Rach, you got to ask your therapist to, to. I'll stop lying to you when you start bringing out the goods.
1: <laughs> well, how, like, Chris, how likely do you think it'll be that it will be a common thing that we start doing for therapy? Like,.
2: I mean, so far it's looking good, right? I mean, it's pretty unlikely in some ways to ever be a first-line treatment. It's hard to say, but basically it's time-consuming and expensive and this sort of thing. So it's there's going to be forces uh, in favour of trying other treatments first, but, like... In terms of this actually being approved as um, a therapeutic treatment, I think at the moment people are saying it could be kind of a couple of years away, depending on the outcome of sort of the next round of clinical trials. So, uh, you know, they're now into what are called phase three trials of psilocybin for depression. So big multi-site trials with kind of hundreds or thousands of subjects. And basically, if these show the same results as the earlier trials, then that kind of opens the door to it actually being approved and being rolled out as, a, you know, a sort of standard-ish form of therapy. Yeah. Wow.
0: So uh, just... A recap for people who didn't hear the first episode we did on this. Uh, we, we did chat to one of the, the people doing the research at King's in London, and they mentioned that in the last year, and this was recorded December 2020, there were $2 billion, I believe they said, in pharmaceutical company investment into cybercillian research. Um, and that in the UK in particular, there are, I think Bristol was the first one, which was a clinic that has been set up to use ketamine as the, like, in therapy because ketamine's already kind of legally easier to, to get past because it is uh, a horse tranquilizer and, and less on the, the, like, class A's. Um, but it is starting with that. There are clinics popping up that are starting with using things that they can in view of as these things get legalised, they will expand their menu, if you will. Yeah, Um, Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, that's right, and so that Bristol Clinic is run by um, Ben Sessa, who's the guy who's doing that MDMA for alcoholism study that I mentioned earlier. Uh, But another thing is at least one US state, I think it might be Oregon, has um, voted to legalise psychedelic therapy, and so that apparently is going to come in there around 2023. So um, there's at least one place where it's currently illegal, but it is going to be legal definitely within the next couple of years.
1: With MDMA for alcoholism... Like, is it particular to alcoholism or is it just about addiction in general?
2: Well, it's about trauma. I don't know a ton about the MDMA research, but I, I've, I've seen Ben Sessa give talks on this and, you know, he's a clinician as well. And his line is basically that all addiction stems from trauma or the vast majority of addiction stems from trauma. And so, you know, most of the MDMA stuff so far has been for PTSD, this idea that it can, you know, help people with PTSD, go back in and process traumatic memories safely and that kind of thing. And um, that's, as far as I understand, that's his rationale for using it in alcoholism is that trauma is the root of addiction
0: i do love the the potential future that we're heading towards because I, I i not not that obviously ptsd and and legitimate like traumas are unfortunate and i it's hard to be flipping off the back of them but also um in a previous episode we did on love of relationship counsel love was like yeah one of the things that that um we we we're, we're hoping to get to um in, in relationship therapy is to piggyback off the stuff that's happening in the clinical world with drugs. And, and so like people who start to feel less affectionate that do therapy on MDMA to help them open it up and remind each other why, why they are affectionate of each other or like where, where trauma is involved using ketamine or psychedelics or whatever. Um, I, I do think it is a potentially really cool future where we can understand what these different substances that work in different ways offer to our brain and kind of use them for actual good as opposed to as a let's have a good time and get fucked up thing.
2: Yeah yeah right so there's this great kind of line that I've seen a few times now which is is kind of mind one of these things that is mind blowing because it's so obvious and yet nobody ever says it which is that drug policy should be about benefit maximization as well as harm minimization or harm reduction and like it's quite amazing that you know even people who are in favor of like quite progressive drug policy the watchword politically is still always harm reduction because the kind of ideas we have in our culture around drugs are such that it doesn't even make sense in some, you know, it doesn't kind of fit with our conceptual scheme to talk about benefit maximisation, maxim- the idea that drugs have benefits. Um, it's just kind of alien. It's foreign to our way of thinking.
0: Yeah, because you're told if you take drugs, you die, and any divergence from that is sinful, not sinful, that puts a level of mysticism, which we don't want to do, but like any divergence from take drugs and die is Oh, what a rebel! You never want a job in your life.
2: Yeah, yeah. Drugs are bad. Okay, and so we're seeing this at the moment. With, <laughs> I, I can't remember the name of the Olympic. Is, is it an Olympic athlete yes, yes. who's just been disqualified for yeah. testing positive to cannabis. Yeah, everyone's sort of saying, "How is cannabis a performance-enhancing drug in athletics?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. If anything, she needs a head start. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, again, Divergent and a fucking huge rabbit hole to get into right at the end. But it is absolutely bonkers that, um, yeah, that, that athletes and the hypocrisy of like, you know, they're giving out fuck tons of condoms at, at the Olympic Village every year because they know these finely tuned athletes have worked four years sacrificed everything and then they're going to go do their thing and then they're going to get fucked up and they're going to fuck each other because what else are you going to do <laughs> but then oh no you you had a joint beforehand mm, no sorry you're out is absolutely the most hypocritical bonkers bullshit I've ever heard and the Olympic Committee can go fuck themselves
1: yeah I want to say more Olympians. well said. Like I want to see more Olympians on drugs. I want to know what I can do. Like how motivated was? <laughs>
2: you know yeah, I mean? yeah, it's yeah. impressive, isn't it? Yeah. It's is impressive. I, I, I like, saw some other sprinter athletes saying, you know, give this person ten gold medals. You know, I, I sprint and I've smoked weed, and there's no way I could.
0: <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> you did both is beyond me. But but that kind of is part of why the Olympic committee acts the way it does right is because there is this idea that uh athletes are role models and if you're able to win a fuck ton of gold medals and be a stoner it very much makes it harder to then go and tell a group a room full of children if you smoke weed you're going to be lazy and you're not going to do anything and da, 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 like it really is contradictory to the the traditional line yeah it
2: undercuts that that narrative a bit doesn't it
1: but it goes to say like there's a reason that people do drugs and it's cuz it feels good. Like what you're saying before Chris about like they always talk about risk minimization and whatnot. But no one talks about it's a good time. You know?
2: Right. Yeah, it's another <laughs> one of these things that is so basic, so blindingly obvious and yet nobody ever says it. People yeah. take drugs um, for many reasons, one of which is that it feels good.
0: Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know which comedian said this, but I I definitely remember hearing somebody on stage say something along the lines of like, drugs are so good, they don't need a salesperson, they need. Countries worth of like people telling you not to buy them and still everybody does that's how good drugs are right
1: (laughs) i want to i want to be like what would be your like takeaway message for people in this in like for the public in your field what would you want them to know from the research you've done
2: yeah so really it is just that thing i was saying um not so long ago that psychedelics as well as having psychological and emotional risks and benefits. They also have epistemic risks and benefits, right? They can be both helpful and harmful when it comes to our Um, you know, uh, our interest in gaining knowledge about the world or having true beliefs and that kind of thing, and that this is something that we need to pay attention to when we're thinking about how to use them safely and responsibly, how to kind of minimise the harms or risks and maximise the benefits. We need to think about minimising the epistemic risks and maximising the epistemic benefits as well.
0: Chris, is there anything that is super interesting and uh, worth discussing that I should have asked you about but did not?
2: Uh, no, not really. Not that I can think of.
1: Wait, what if Chris? Was, what if Chris was like uh, do drugs and work? And like that was his
0: like take. Well, now that you say, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on this episode, Rachel Hornbuckle. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get you on board, but thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, and Chris Leithby. Thank you. I think uh, so interesting to, to to hear your work. Um, Chris, the book title, when it will be out, hit us with those details.
2: Yeah, so it's called Philosophy of Psychedelics. It's coming out from Oxford University Press and it's going to be out um, a month tomorrow in the UK, actually, 5th of August, and then it'll be out in um, the US and Australia about six to eight weeks after that. So it should be um, sometime in October, I guess.
0: Rachel gigs, comedy stuff. Where can people find out what's going on with you? Um
1: at haha.hornbuckle.
0: <laughs> and that is the episode. Thanks again for taking the time to hang out with us. It really does mean the world to me that you uh, decide to spend an hour and hang out and, and hear what we have to say. And I hope you enjoyed. It. I hope you learned something. If you did find this topic interesting and you haven't already checked it out episode five of the podcast, we spoke to a researcher who is currently leading uh, the world in research into the medical benefits of Cybersilion in the treatment of depression. So check that out if you found that interesting If you've enjoyed the episode, as always, it really does help us when you tell a friend, when you subscribe, when you like, when you give us a rating on Apple. All of that helps more people find the podcast, which makes it more fun. So please do. Talk to you next week. It's highbrow drivel of the highest order. An absolute disgrace. That's am there
1: some good Well, uh, I mm-hmm. never
0: Absolute mm-hmm. dribble I do say, by constraints. Now, there's some good ah ass eyebrow dribble, you hear me? Welcome you look to eyebrow dribble.